The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. Um, Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. We're proceeding through the book of Luke. What a wonderful challenge it is to uh, read the book of Luke, the story, the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, it boggles our mind the glory of Christ and why he came into the world to save us. But this is exactly what's happened. Instead of reading the text before, I want to just work our way through it. Last week, we looked at the first 13 verses of uh, Luke, Luke 11. It was all about prayer. If you remember in the first couple of verses, it talked about the importance of prayer and then the substance of prayer and then a parallel dealing with the practice of prayer. And then the two many parables that he gave us illustrating the basis of prayer. It ends in verse 13 with the ultimate example of God giving us good gifts in the fact that he's given us the spirit. In fact, this Holy Spirit is referred to before the coming of Christ and during his ministry as the promise from the Father. The word Messiah, or in the New Testament, Christ, which is just the Greek form of the word Messiah, means anointed one. And what he was anointed with was the Holy Spirit. He came in the power of the Spirit. It's an amazing truth. This is the eternal God, the eternal Son of God, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has all power. Uh, he actually received all authority in, in heaven and on earth after the resurrection. He could have done everything he did in his own power, but instead, the way that the plan worked was Jesus Christ submitted to this, the, the empowerment of the Spirit. He walked in the Spirit, and he did everything he did in the power of the Spirit to show us what it's like to live in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. Um, in, in John 16, 7, it says, but I tell you the truth, Jesus is saying, talking to his disciples in the upper room, he said, uh, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. They were, they were getting the picture that Jesus was about to leave them, and they were getting kind of depressed over this and, and uh, a little bit nervous. And so Jesus says, oh, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, this helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, referring to the Holy Spirit. Um, in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, Paul says this. I think I can quote this. Uh, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if it is true that the spirit of God dwells in you. And if you do not have the spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to him. That's a pretty strong statement that all Christians, without exception, every believer, everyone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, has the Holy Spirit living in them. And we have been called to walk in the spirit. In fact, we're told in other places, like Jude 19, that those who don't have the spirit... That is, those who are not saved are devoid of the Spirit. This is the difference. In fact, in the entire New Testament, if you notice, Christians are always called spiritual people. Sometimes we think spiritual, a spiritual person is someone who's very mature and doing spectacular things in the name of Christ. But actually, all believers are called spiritual people because we have the Holy Spirit. And the unsaved are called soulish. That is, they live according to their fallen nature. So what God has done for us in saving us, he's given us the Holy Spirit to come and live within us. 
All believers have the Holy Spirit. I only want to emphasize this because I was raised being taught that you didn't have the Holy Spirit when you first got saved. It took a second experience later on. And that could be really frustrating. It's that one, one of my professors said it's kind of like trying to tie your shoes when you're wearing loafers. In other words, you're trying to do something that's already been done for you. God has already put his spirit in you. You have the Holy Spirit. The real question is, are you walking in the spirit? Are you being filled with the spirit? Which means, are you finding the fullness that you need inside of you in order to live life on this earth in the spirit? Are you looking elsewhere? Now, it's possible for Christians to ignore the Holy Spirit for for a short time. Because we learn a lot when we crash and burn. And we decide that we desperately need the Spirit. We need to learn how to walk in the Spirit. We need to learn how to discover His wisdom from the Word of God and follow Him. Follow the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5. We walk in the Spirit. We live our lives in response to the Spirit's Word and His presence, the empowerment of His presence. We live according to the wisdom that He has given us in the Word. That's what the Christian life's all about. It's walking in the Spirit. It's living your life in the Spirit. So this gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about here in verse 13 of chapter 11 begins a whole new discussion. In fact, in the, what unfolds in the, in the following events, all the way down through chapter 12, verse 12, is what is meant by this inbreaking of the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives, what it's all about. So that's what we want to look at uh, today. I can't see a screen, so I have to turn around and look at that. But first of all, we're going to look at how in, the, in verses 14 through 32 of chapter 11, he talks about this, uh, this spiritual re- revolution that's taken place. And it's, that's, not, that's not using too much of an expression. It's an absolute revolution that takes place in the heart of a person when they receive Christ and the Spirit comes to live within them and opens their eyes to truth. In fact, he's like a light, a light that makes Jesus Christ plain. When you first came to faith in Christ, it was because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to who Christ really is. And you put your trust in him. You, you put all of your weight on him. You believed on him and his work on your behalf. And the spirit that opened your eyes now resides in you, and he manifests the light of the gospel in you, and it flows out of you into the lives of other people. And this is God's doing. Now what happens in the next few verses is Jesus is demonstrating how revolutionary this is by casting a demon out of a man. If you notice in verse 14, and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. That is, the demon produced muteness in the man in whom he dwelt that he was this man was under the power of this demon and so he couldn't speak when the demon had gone out the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed but some of them said he who casts out demons he casts out demons by Beelzebul now that's a funny name but where it comes from is uh, second kings chapter 2 or first kings chapter 2 it is and it's, it's it, back in the Old Testament, it was called Beelzebub. And a lot of guys like that name better, Beelzebub. But all that means is he's the lord of the fly, of the flies. In other words, he was a, he was a pagan god who really was a representative of Satan. 
I should say Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, was what his name meant, Satan's name meant. But what they're saying is, you're doing this in the power of Satan. You're casting out this demon in the power of Satan. That's the, that's the objection, that it's what he's doing. He's doing it in the power of Satan. But notice what happens. It says, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Now, what they just saw was an incredible sign. He cast a demon out of a man, and this man began to speak. He was healed and set free. And what's going on here? This is a confrontation of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Satan. Jesus has come to bind the strong man and to set people free. And this is exactly what's going on here. This is why Jesus kept saying, if I do that, in fact, let me go ahead and read this. He says, but he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons, that is your prophets, your, uh, those who were casting out demons in Israel, by whom do they cast them out? So they will be, so they will be your judges. But then Jesus says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, now in Matthew, it's interesting, when Matthew quotes Jesus, he says, if I cast out demons by the Holy Spirit, the finger of God is an expression that was used, if you remember, when, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and he wrote with the finger of God, he wrote the Ten Commandments on those stones after uh, Moses had destroyed the first one, if you remember, of, out of his frustration. He goes back up on the mountain and God inscribes those commandments on the stones. So this expression, the finger of God, used several times in Scripture. It always speaks about the fact this is a work of God and God alone. Only God could do this. Now, it's often that you will see these kinds of expressions where God does something, it's like finger work. It talks, like, it talks about this, for example, uh, when it talks about the creation of the universe, it was his handiwork. God, it's his finger work. God created the universe, it was no strain. But when it talks about providing your salvation, it's, he says in, in Isaiah 52, he made his right arm bare. What does that mean? You know when you have to do something really difficult and so you have to roll up your sleeve and exert a lot of energy? It was like, in comparison to the creation of the universe, your salvation was a great, great work in comparison. Because his own son is his right arm and he had to be bared. He went to the cross and died for you. This is the greatest work that God has ever accomplished. In fact, Hebrews tells us that this was at the high point of all the ages. This was the key event in all of history. Everything before it led up to it, everything after flowed out of it. And that is the work of Jesus Christ who appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so God had to become vulnerable in the person of his son, he was beaten and he was tried and beaten and condemned and hung on a cross. And he died for you and for me. And so Isaiah calls it, he had to bear his arm. His right arm is always a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, his eternal son who came into the world. So when they objected that he was doing this by the power of Beelzebul, that is Satan, Jesus' response is just common sense. Wait a minute. If Satan is divided against himself, then his kingdom can't stand. 
The second objection is they want a sign. Some of them want a sign. They want God to do something in the heavens. You know, people are like that. They'd like to see something supernatural. We're going to have a supernatural event tonight. We're going to heal 15 people and raise the dead and, and something like that. And, and people will actually go and, and watch those kinds of events. God says, I've already given you a sign. In fact, I ca- if I cast out this demon by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has drawn near you, has come upon you. To, this idea of, some, of the Spirit coming upon a person is a common phrase in the Bible. It refers to the fact of the, of the Spirit coming in great power and accomplishing something supernatural. For example, the building of the tabernacle in the Old Testament when they were in the desert, God gave them a plan. He told them exactly how he wanted them to build the tabernacle where he would dwell in their midst. And he told them exactly how to do it. And then it says that the Spirit came upon the men who built it. He empowered these, these skillful artisans to, uh, to create this tabernacle exactly as God, as God had given them the plan. But the Spirit's empowerment, him coming upon people, he does it for a purpose. And this is what Jesus is saying. If I, have, if I do this by the finger of God, if this is the power of God being manifested against Satan, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What he means by that, it's right here in your face. This is the power of God. And this is the person who's bringing the kingdom of God into your presence. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a, a, a great power, uh, a great power manifested by Christ. And so, what Jesus does is he tells them how foolish it is to think that Satan could work against Satan. But he goes on to tell them, "There's no other sign that's going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah." Stop and think about that a minute. Jonah. What did he do? Well. He started running in the opposite direction because God said, I want you to go to the Ninevites and I want you to declare their judgment. The Ninevites were the most treacherous people on the face of the earth. And to go to Nineveh would be a death sentence. And so what Jonah decided was he was going to go in the opposite direction. You've never done that, have you? When you knew God wanted you to go here and you went in the opposite direction? Well, that's what he did. And you remember what happened. They ended up getting thrown overboard because God had brought a big storm on the sea and these sailors recognized this was God doing it so they threw him in the water and he was swallowed by a great fish now this this really disturbs a lot of people think you actually believe that yes I do I do believe that because it's part of the word of God and what it is it's a picture of Christ he was thrown into the sea he was in the belly of the whale for three days and then he was spit out on the shore And he goes to the Ninevites and preaches the gospel. And what happened was exactly what he was afraid of. He wasn't afraid of being killed. He wasn't afraid of being uh, paid no attention to. He was afraid that they would repent and God would save them. And he hated them. He didn't want them to be saved. But they repented. And so Jesus says, that's the only sign you're going to get. It's the sign of Jonah. What's that? Death, burial, and resurrection. The sign that Jesus, the only sign that he left us is this. He died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And just like Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale for three days, Jesus was in his tomb for three days, and then he was raised from the dead. And this work was a sign to them that he truly was the king of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God had drawn near to them, and they were rejecting it. And so this is a 
this is an incredible event that's taking place in the power of the Spirit. It's a spiritual revolution in the person of Jesus as he works in the power of the Spirit. The next section, verses 29 through 32, if you turn to, to verse 29, let me read this. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. That's not very complimentary, is it? He's talking to these Jewish people who are his people, and the great majority of them have rejected him. And so he says, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be a sign to this generation. The Queen of the South, that is the Queen of Sheba, who came to see the glory of Solomon. She made a long, long trip to find out about this wisdom of, of Solomon that she had heard about. And she was absolutely in awe of the wisdom that God had given to Solomon. But listen to what he says. The queen of the south or the queen of Sheba will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Just like something greater than Jonah is here. Something, this work that Jesus is going to do is far greater than what Jonah did and it's far greater than what Solomon did. The men of Nineveh, he says in verse 32, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they, rep- they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now what Jesus is calling for is repentance and faith and his own people, the Jews, would not repent. They continued to try to prove that he was a fraud no matter how much he proved his own power and deity and the fact that he had been sent by God to his people. In fact, you remember, the, the, it's the, the people who received him the most were those who were outside of Israel. Remember the woman at the well in John 4, the Samaritan woman? Well, she was a, a person who lived among the people. She was a part of a people group that were absolute enemies of the Jews. She was a half-breed from their perspective, and that she was, should be condemned. And yet she says, could this be the Messiah? Because he has told me things that no one could know. You remember that story, how he says to her, well, go get your husband and come back here. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. Now, that little insight, he could not have known any other way except that he is the Son of God. And he knew exactly what was going on in her life. And so this was the pattern. Those who were repudiated and looked down upon by the Jews received Christ as the Messiah, and the Jewish leaders rejected him. And so this confrontation that's taking place is the great manifestation of the power of the Spirit through Jesus Christ, and it shows so clearly that they rejected him. They refused to repent and turn to him in faith. Now, this giving of the Spirit also is a spiritual transformation. Spiritual transformation. Now, this is what we've experienced as well. When we came to faith in Christ, when the Spirit came in us, He began to to do a transformation in our hearts. I I was thinking this morning as we were singing and stuff, if a person comes into a local church and they've never been there before, it's like a foreign land they're in. It's like everybody seems to know what they're supposed to do. They stand up at the right time. They sit down at the right time. They sing the words they're supposed to sing most of the time. And, uh, 
and, and you're coming in here and you don't know what in the world you're supposed to do. Well, what we do is simply honor Christ as best we can. We want to honor him because we are absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that believing in him, our sins were forgiven and we were brought into the kingdom of God. We were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And that's why we do what we do. We want to praise him. And so we sing about his death and his burial and his resurrection. We sing about his role in our life. And it's done through the power of the spirit who has come to live within us. So in this next, this, this next section, in verses 33 through chapter 12, verse, verse 12, listen to what it says. No one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar, nor, nor under a basket, but on a lampstand. What's he talking about? When you receive the Holy Spirit, the most foolish thing in the world is to try to hide his person and presence and power. So that those who enter may see the light. In other words, when you, you light a lamp, you want to put it in a place that sheds light in the whole room. When people come into your house, you don't turn all the lights off and say, just watch out for the furniture, but come on in. No, you, put, you, put the, you turn the lights on so they can see. So what are you supposed to do? You have the light of the glory of God living in you, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it's bad, your body's also full of darkness. Does that make sense to you? I went to the op- ophthalmologist this week because my, my eyesight, I can't, I was seeing so good, and all of a sudden, I have to wear glasses to read most things unless I have really good light. So I had my eyes checked, and the gal, she's checking, I can tell she's frustrated. She can't figure out uh, what's going on with my eyes. She finally looks into my eyes, and she goes, you have a secondary cataract. What's happened is, is I had cataract surgery, and they put, you know, they put artificial lenses in there, and I had great eyesight. I could see better than I had ever seen. But now they've clouded up. There's some stuff over them, and the only way to fix it is they take a, a laser and go in and uh, clean this stuff off. I'm not excited about that. But I am excited about the fact that maybe I'll be able to see again. That'd be wonderful. And so what he says is your eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, if your eye goes bad, like my eyes, I've gone bad, and so I I find it hard to read unless I have really good light. But imagine what it would be like if if your vision began to dim very radically. You couldn't get around. What he's talking about is the spiritual reality. Your eye has been made clear by the Holy Spirit. If you don't read the Bible, if you're a believer, if you're a born-again believer and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you don't go to the Word of God, you are living very foolishly. Because you've been given a person who lives in you, who can, who can make sense of the Bible for you. He can, he can so work in your life that you can understand what the Word of God is saying. And you can learn the wisdom of the Spirit for life, how to live the, the life. And uh, a lot of times we get frustrated with people who have claimed to be followers of Christ and they begin to live in total, total uh, independence and disobedience to Christ. And no matter, I remember I spent a whole year trying to talk a woman into not committing a major sin in her life. Because I knew this is where she was headed. For a whole year I talked to her and tried to talk her out of that. 
And she finally said, no, this is what I'm going to do, even though I know it's against the Bible, but I believe that God wants me to do this because it's what's going to make me happy. Oh, let me give you some news. God never does that. He never violates his word to make you happy. He gives you his word so you can be happy. He gives you his word and he gives you the Holy Spirit who lives within you, the interpreter of the word of God. And he sheds light on the word of God and you see the the wisdom of God. And you actually, he puts a desire in your heart to be obedient to Christ. This is a mark of the believer. Mark of the believer is because you have the Holy Spirit. You actually want to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. You see the wisdom of it. You understand the blessings of it. And if you don't, then you, you need to ask God for a, a deep work of the Spirit to take the cloud off of your eyes so that you can see spiritually. You can see the, see the reality of what he has unveiled to us in his word. And so that's why he says no one lights a lamp and then hides it somewhere, puts it under a bed. When the eye is the lamp of the body, when your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. In other words, we can walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship with God and enjoy the greatest amount of joy in all of life for the Christians to live in fellowship with the living God. That's that's the most blessed life there is, is to live your life in fellowship with the God who created you for himself. To actually have the kind of relationship with him in which you walk in the light of who he is. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for our spiritual eyes. Now, what we have in verses 37 through 54 is this contrast between outward religion, and then we'll see in the next section what the reality of the Spirit being at work in our lives really is. There are six woes here in this next section. There are three woes on the Pharisees, three woes on the lawyers, which are the not lawyers like we think of. They were lawyers. They were experts in the law. These are the experts I remember Vance Abner preached a message, the stupidity of the specialists. And it was, and it was based upon the passage that said, the, it was the specialists, it was the builders of the kingdom of God who rejected the cornerstone. And so he called it the stupidity of the specialists. Well, sometimes we as Christians, we're looking everywhere for answers and we forget, oh, wait a minute, the answer is living inside of me. I've had the spirit of God has taken up residence in me. And he can open my eyes to the word of God. I've actually had people tell me, you know, I just can't understand the Bible. I said, really? Yeah. I said, well, what is it you don't understand? I don't know. I don't read it. I can't understand it. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That God gave you this book, 66 books bound in one word of God. And the Holy Spirit's been placed in you so that he can guide you into all the truth. So that you can come to understand exactly what God says. Now listen to these words. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Now you should wash your hands before you eat. My mama told me that. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about ceremonial washing. 
going through some motions that, that say I'm ceremonially clean that they had thought up. You see, people like to develop religious things. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, we want you to take these 15 steps before we can uh, tell you that you, we know you're really, uh, you really have a relationship with God. Well, Jesus refused. He did not wash ceremonially. He didn't follow the, the, the Pharisees. Uh, he didn't jump through the Pharisees' hoops. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees and he says this, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. <laughs> Don't you get a kick out of this? Can you imagine Jesus saying this to this man? It's like when he said to Nicodemus, who was the teacher of Israel, who came to him at night, and he says, uh, well... You know, we know that you must have come from God because of the things you've done and said. And Jesus says, oh, you can't understand me. You can't see the kingdom of God and you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again, born of the spirit. Because he, he couldn't be flattered. Jesus was incredibly honest and kind. He was kind to people who were in, in very difficult situations, but he spoke clearly he says, what you Pharisees have done, you've learned to try to clean up the outside and, have, and make things look good, like you're really religious. You go through all the external motions. You've all heard the story of how the Pharisees, would, when they would offer their, their giving, their tithe or their poor tax, when they would give it, they would have men come along and play music. So everybody would be turned to see what they were going to do, and they put their money in the bucket. And that's when Jesus says, the little widow that gave her two mites gave more than these rich Pharisees. And the reason is we don't practice religious things in order to be accepted by God. We're accepted by faith. We receive salvation as a gift. And we're grateful as a gift. And so what we want to do is obey what God has told us, not what religious people have told us. In fact, notice this. He says in verse 42, But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe and mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. You, in other words, you tithe your, your garden vegetables, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. We see this in the gospel accounts, how they were willingly doing the most horrible things to people to exert their power. And yet they thought they were right with God because they did their little acts of even tithing on their vegetables. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. You're, you're full of dead men's bones, but people just don't see it. All they see is your religious activity. One of the lawyers who was there also with him at lunch one of the experts in the law, was not a Pharisee, but an expert in the law. He says to him, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Because we're the ones who have to teach the law, and we tell people what they're supposed to do. But he said, woe to you, lawyers, as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your own fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. 
For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. It all came to a head when Jesus came to the nation of Israel, and they rejected the Lord of glory. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who would enter. What an incredible responsibility leaders have in the church of teaching truth and living truth. Being, being transformed by the teaching of the Word of God. As they teach it, it will transform them. That's what's supposed to happen. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to have impact in my life before it has impact in your life. And then he says, when he left there, it says, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. The reason they asked him these, these questions that they did is they wanted to find some reason to condemn him. But he was the Lord of glory. He was perfectly righteous. And he never fell into their trap. Now to his disciples in the first 12 verses of chapter 12, he's going to say this. Listen to this. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is? Uh, hypocrisy is playing a role. It's putting on a mask and pretending to be something you're not. And he says the leaven of the Pharisees is their hypocrisy. They're pretending to be religious men, spiritual men. But in fact, they're full of dead men's bones. He says, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. Now, this is scary. Listen to this. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. You know, we're all shocked by what's going on in our country of leaders and different people in power who are uh, coming forward as uh, committing horrible acts, and now they're being held accountable. The light's been shined on them. They can no longer hide their sin, and it's costing them dearly. Well, what, what the Word of God says, what Jesus said is, there's coming a day when nothing's going to be hidden. I want to stand before God in all, in the light of the glory of God. Remember uh, how God led Israel in the Old Testament when he took them through the wilderness? He led them with a pillar of fire in the night and a pillar of cloud in the daytime. Well, that pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud was, was called the Shekinah or the presence of God. The presence of God. They were living in the presence of God. Imagine that. Living in the manifest presence of God. The light of his glory was shining all around them. Can you imagine trying to hide your sin in that kind of context? Well, when we stand before God, and we all are going to stand before God, we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and, and he's talking to these religious people especially, there's, you cannot hide what you are, truly are. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the darkness will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Paul says, uh, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. 
I find that a very convicting verse. Let no unwholesome words shoot forth from your mouth. Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and have, after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is fear God. It's not the devil. The devil doesn't have the, the, the authority to cast you into hell. God does. If you're here today without Christ, this is the great motivation to flee to him in repentance and faith because he's the only one who can cover you with his righteousness and make you right with God. Jesus goes on, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Even things that we don't count to be of any value, God knows exactly what's going on. Indeed, the very hairs of your head, the hairs of your head. You get that? The hairs of your hair, of your head, are all numbered. I don't know if he has like one, two, three, four, five. But he, he knows exactly. He knows everything about you. This, this isn't Google. We're not talking about, you know, online privacy and these companies who are able to find out everything about you so they can advertise. We're talking about the God of the universe. He knows everything about you. And the wonderful thing is, when that reality hits you, you don't have to run away from God. You can run to God because he sent his son into the world to rescue you from condemnation and guilt and to bring you into the family of God. That's why he sent Christ. And he says, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angel of God, angels of God, in the presence of God. I've often thought about this, that there are people, there are names that are being brought before the living God as you pray for people. Because you are believer priests, you have access to the throne of God, and so you, you come before God and you mention people's names that you want God to work in their life. And those names are passed on by the Lord Jesus Christ, our intercessor, our mediator. Isn't that something? I have no doubt that my name was called by my mother to God as I was growing up, that she was asking God to save me, to open my eyes to the truth of the gospel. And you know, some of you have children and grandchildren you're praying for, and you're wondering, what more can I do? The real question is, what, what can your intercessor do when you pray and ask God on behalf of those that you love, that you know they're far from God and they need him so desperately. I know what it's like to feel so desperate, but I also know what it's like for God to confirm to your heart that he's heard you, that he's heard you, and you can bring these needs before him. And I say to you, that's because you have the Holy Spirit. I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the, in the presence of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the presence of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means this. The role of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction to your heart about the truth of who Jesus Christ is. 
When you share the gospel with somebody, what you are praying is that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to their heart. Because that's what Jesus said he was going to do, right? In, in John 16, he says, the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they don't believe on me. Of righteousness because I go to the Father. And, and you've got to understand, when Jesus was on earth and men got exposed to him, they were repulsed because he was perfectly righteous and it made them see themselves as they really were. And of judgment because the, the God of this age has been judged. So when I witness to somebody, I recognize that I need, what I am praying for is that the Holy Spirit will bring the message of the gospel to their heart. Now it's possible for us to butcher up the gospel. You know, we try to, we try to uh, communicate it and we feel like we've done such a horrible job but the Holy Spirit knows how to bring conviction to the heart. In fact, if, if most of us were, could remember how we heard the gospel when we first heard it, when we actually believed, we would all conclude that, you know, I came, I came to faith by, as a result of this person sharing the gospel with me, but they weren't really very good at it. You could never, you'd never put them on TV. But you see, it's the Holy Spirit who brings home the message of the gospel. So speak freely. Speak freely. Tell them the gospel. Tell them that, that exactly what God says, that he sent his son into the world to die for sinners, to give them life and forgiveness and participation in the kingdom of God, to become a part of the family of God. Just tell them the truth and see what God does. Pray that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to their hearts. I've told you before I had a a couple of cousins that were my age that uh, one of them is still living the other one died of cancer uh, and I used to witness to them continually and I'm sure they got really frustrated with it but I prayed for them for about 40 years and both of them came to faith had nothing to do with me but they came to faith in Christ and now the one that's still alive is living for Christ he's a cowboy lives up in Hornitos a ghost town and runs a of cattle ranch but he's a follower of Jesus Christ because he put his faith in Jesus and you know who convinced him it was the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit convinced him you've got people in your life that you've tried everything you know and you cannot convince them of the truth of the gospel and sometimes they may even say okay I, I believe that I believe that I believe that to get you off their back but when the Holy Spirit convinces them they embrace Christ by faith. And they begin to love Christ above all things. That's a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. I just want you to know that the Holy Spirit lives in you, believer. No matter what you've heard. And there's all kinds of teaching that's floated around the church about how you can receive the Spirit. After all, didn't Jesus say he gives the Spirit to those who ask him? What he was talking about was this was the promise of the Old Testament. That when the Messiah would come... God would pour out of his spirit upon all flesh. That is, that the spirit would be given by the Father. So when you believe on Christ, the spirit comes to live within you. In fact, he's the one who convinces you of the truth of the gospel. And now you're empowered. And so the last thing I want to say to you is, and I'm going to stop, is learn to walk in the spirit. And basically it's this, that rely on his presence. You don't have to feel something in particular to know that the Spirit is present. You have to know the truth of the Word of God. 
It's, it's great to feel, if we want to put it this way, to feel the presence of the Spirit. But there's something more important. Is he really there? Is he really there? Last night I was working on some stuff and I, the TV was on and this uh, program came on where they showed all these soldiers coming home and, and surprisingly appearing in a school function and the kids see their dad. They did about 10 of those. Well, by the time it's halfway through, I'm weeping. Because it's so touching, you know, these kids, their, their eyes are open and they see their, their dad who's been away for a year. And all of a sudden, they, all they want to do is run and, and jump into his arms. Well, let me tell you, the Spirit of God is able to speak to people's hearts. And so what we need to do is rely on his presence. When you bear witness of Christ, rely on the presence of the Holy Spirit. Embrace his wisdom, which is what you have in the Word of God. His wisdom for life, how to live how to walk, and then follow his lead. That's just walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, Believer, if you walk in the Spirit, you will absolutely not carry out the strong desires of the flesh. Because the Holy Spirit will lead you where he wants you to go. So I, I just want to remind you, you have the Spirit of God. You have within you the one who bears witness of Christ in the most effective way. And what you need to do is open your mouth and be and act like an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Oh, don't, if people don't want to hear it, then fine. Walk, move on. That's what Jesus told his disciples. If they don't want to hear it, move on. But tell them about Christ. Now, in order to tell them about Christ, you have to actually be experiencing the reality of Christ in your life. When I say re- experiencing the reality, does the Spirit ever touch your heart? Does he ever touch you in the realm of your affections when you think about Christ, when you read the Word and you hear what the Word of God says about what Jesus did for you? When he was on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For you. So that he could save you if you turn to him today. And so I would just, uh, I just want to say to you who know Christ, to walk in the Spirit this week. Learn to walk in the Spirit. Rely on His presence, embrace His wisdom, and follow His lead. What a glorious, glorious salvation this is. That the third person of the Trinity comes to live within the believer. And he mediates the presence of Christ and the presence of the Father in your life. And this is why, this is why Paul says, uh, this is why Peter says, actually, First Peter one, um, if if you're if you even though you haven't seen him, if you're believing, if you're loving him and believing him, you will rejoice with joy and un- unspeakable and full of glory. The Holy Spirit will produce profound, deep joy in your heart when you're actually relating to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. He will do something in you that's powerful. It's life changing. So I appeal to you, walk in the Spirit. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.